as we look at prophecy, I don't think I need to tell you that there are many different views out there. There are many different perspectives on prophecy. It's almost as if you were to tune your, your, your television to different channels. Every preacher that's preaching about prophecy has their own view of what's going to happen. Have you ever felt that way? Um, there's about as many different opinions as there are preachers. And so I understand that sometimes it can be confusing. We're going to be looking tonight at a topic, the Antichrist, which was previously, in the uh, Protestant world at least, very, very uniformly viewed. There was basically one understanding of this, and what has happened is there, there have emerged, since about the uh, 16th century, there have emerged three different primary streams of prophetic thought. And um, just briefly, let me, let me summarize them for you. The first is historicism. And that's the school of thought that you and I have been studying for the last 11 times together. We'll be looking at that again tonight. Historicism says, look, the prophecy came to the prophet, and it began with a time period about the time of the prophet, and it gave an unbroken timeline of different events. Not that it would talk about something that happened every single day, you understand, but what followed would follow chronologically until the end of the vision. That's the way Daniel 2 worked, isn't it? Um, that's the way we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7 tonight. You're going to see that it works the same way. And I argue that Daniel is the primer to help us understand the book of Revelation, you see. And so why would we expect Revelation to work differently, prophecy to work differently in Revelation than it does in the book of Daniel, right? That's why I'm a historicist. To me, Daniel chapter 2 starts right off with this idea that, that uh, the prophecy is, towards the, is for the time of the end, but the, it, it covers the period from the, time prophet, from the time of the prophet all the way to the time of the end, okay? The second major school of thought is that of preterism. Now, preterism, um, preterism views the prophet as speaking about things primarily in his environment, primarily in the, the world that he is living in, the world around him. So the prophecies are going to be fulfilled in preterist view. The prophecies are going to be fulfilled at or about the time of the prophet. So within a few years after the, the death of the prophet or around the time of the prophet, we would expect that to those things to take place, okay? So that's preterism. Now, preterism was invented, as I mentioned, it, it, it did not become a mainstream until, well, it was it didn't become mainstream until really in the last 150 years, but it was invented in uh, several hundred years before that. Uh, we, don't find, we don't find many instances of preterism prior to that. The third school of thought, which is probably the most commonly encountered today, is the, is the idea of futurism. It's a school of thought called futurism. Futurism says, yeah, there were some prophecies that had to do with the time of the prophet, but there's this gap that takes place where the prophecies start, there's some event that will initiate the prophecy, the vision doesn't begin to be fulfilled until a future event um, at the time of the end, okay? Now, there's a couple of problems with futurism. One of the problems with futurism is that because it robs us of a consistent history of the same vision being fulfilled, we can see how it's being fulfilled, and then we find where we are in the stream of time, and we see that the future events are going to be fulfilled using the same principles of interpretation, right? Futurism, it says, puts it all into the future, which is why you find so great, so many varieties of interpretation if they are working on a futurist model. Does this make sense? If we took the whole vision which they wouldn't do of Daniel chapter 2. Everyone's a historicist in Daniel chapter 2. 
But if we take the whole vision of the seven churches, or the seven trumpets, or the seven seals, and we put it all in the future, then we don't have any history to show us how the first, second, third, or wherever we are in the stream of time, how those have already been fulfilled. Do you understand what I'm saying? And without that history, we can basically, we can, our imagination is the limit of what principles those prophecies are going to be interpreted by when they actually start fulfilling. Does that make sense? And so tonight we're going to be looking at what was once the universally held view of Daniel chapter 7 by all Protestant denominations. I believe it's, if we, 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 we may not have time to look at it tonight, but I believe that when you look at the New Testament writers, Paul particularly, he seemed to have had this view as well. And um, I think that you're going to see it abundantly clear. I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I want to make sure that you tonight leave certain about the identity of the Antichrist. And when we talk about the Antichrist, we can have different views or different ideas engendered. Um, for some, there, it has been limited to a person that will appear in the future. Now, I understand that the devil is very active and the devil will be very active in the last days. Do you believe that? The, the Bible says, Jesus said, that if possibly it will deceive the very elect. And so I'm not here to discount the fact that there will be impersonations of, of Christ, perhaps. There will, be, there will be great deceptions in the personage of a person in the last days. But tonight we're going to be looking at a, 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 a view of the Antichrist, which is a broader view. And we remember we talked about the Antichrist in the past. We talked about how Antichrist does not always simply mean against Christ, it also means in the place of, right? The prefix anti, um, there's two prefixes, A-N-T-E and A-N-T-I in the, in the Latin, and um, there's, the, we, we, we have, a, we even have, it could even mean before Christ, right? The, the antecedent or the antipasta, um, we use those, we use those uh, prefixes as well. So, we're going to be talking about the Antichrist, we're going to be seeing how prophecy has been very clear about it, and there is more than one passage, there is more than one passage, which identifies this antichrist power, a power who seeks to usurp the worship of God, who, um, who, who has a, a number of, of, of parallel corollary characteristics from the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and the writings of Paul. And the things that tie them together are their activities, their attitudes toward God, and their time in which they would be able to rule. So we're going to be looking at that tonight. Are you ready? You want to look at how Daniel describes this, 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 uh, this development? Let's dig right into the Word of God. And if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be using our Bibles tonight. I'll be reading some from the screen, but it's all right here. Um, and you can read it in the Word of God for yourself. Amen? All right, so Daniel chapter 7, it begins with this vision of four great beasts. Now, um, some of them are more frightful than others. And how do, you, how do we know that these are symbolic beasts or animals? Any ideas? Okay, well, the first great clue... I believe the Bible should be literally in, interpreted whenever possible, but when we, the first great clue that this is a symbolic prophecy is when you have, for example, a lion with eagle's wings, or um, a leopard with four heads, or a great and dreadful beast, he couldn't even think of anything to compare it to, so he just says a great and, it was a really scary beast, that's what he said. Um, 
So if you see something like this that you don't, you know, I don't know about you, but I have not seen any lions with eagle's wings in the Dalton Zoo, right? So it's pro since they're not actually in existence, then they're probably symbolic. In fact, we, we're, we're sure they're symbolic, right? So let's, let's dig in and let's see what happens here. Daniel says, I saw in my vision by night, verse 2 and 3, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, this is very interesting, isn't it? Um, we have four great beasts um, uh, coming out of the great sea. Now, a couple of times in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, we find creatures coming out of the sea, and um, we want to understand what these symbols mean. So we'll take them one at a time. We're going to look at creatures. We're going to look at what these represent here in just a minute. But I want us to first turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and verse 15. And the book of Revelation explains what the waters represent in symbolic Bible prophecy. The waters which you saw, the, the angel told John, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So what does water represent in the book of Revelation? People, right? That's the support of Babylon in the book of Revelation. In fact, in, in chapter 16, we looked in our last session together at the seven last plagues. Remember that? And how the sixth plague, the vial is poured out on the river Euphrates. Well, where was the river Euphrates? It ran right through Babylon. It was the support of Babylon, right? Spiritual Babylon at the, end of, in, at the last days also sits on the Euphrates River, according to the sixth plague. It sits on the Euphrates River, but what, is it, what does that river represent? It represents all the people that support a system of false worship, a system of false religion. And um, we'll be talking more about that when we talk about Revelation's two women. But for now, we see that waters represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Going back to the book of Daniel, we find the, we find the, the Bible explains itself. What do these animals or great beasts represent? According to Daniel chapter 7, verse 17, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. So what are those animals or beasts of Daniel chapter 7 representing? What are they, everyone? They're kings. Now, we, we skip down to verse, uh, verse 23. We see also that king and kingdom is used interchangeably. Just like Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold, right? It really represented the Babylonian empire, but he was the king of Babylon, right? So king and kingdom is used interchangeably here. And it, in 23, it says the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So already we get the idea very clearly, not my idea, not Chester Clark's opinion or interpretation. The Bible tells us, right? that from the populated region of the world, from the waters, there's four empires arising, four kingdoms arising. Now that sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like maybe something we studied about in Daniel chapter 2. And the first, if we read down in these uh, verses in Daniel chapter 7, it says, the four great beasts came up one from, uh, from the sea. Verse 4 says, the first was like a lion and had what? Eagle's wings. Now, that would be a pretty formidable animal, wouldn't it? But something would happen to this lion. It wouldn't be as fierce for long. Um, it says, I, behold, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was, made, it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Verse 5 describes another beast, and this one is a bear. And it says, it raised its, up itself on one side. It had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said, thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6 says, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had on the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. So here you have three beasts, 
And um, these three beasts have come up out of the sea. They all have these, these characteristics, which each one of these, we could look in the Bible and we could see different places where, for example, wings, it would be pretty obvious, right? Wings represent speed, right? And uh, we'll be looking at some of these symbols as we go along. Finally, in verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. Evidently, Daniel didn't recognize this creature when it emerged, right? He's like, wow, I've never seen anything like it, T-Rex or something. And um, he said this was, it, was, it had great iron teeth. It says it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had what? Ten horns. We'll get to the horns here in a little while. So what we're going to do, we're going to back up now and we're going to take a look at each one of these animals or beasts individually. And we're going to see what they uh, symbolized or represented. I'm sure many of you probably are familiar with this passage and with the, the representation of the, uh, the four beasts, but I just want us to make sure that we're all on the same page, that we all understand where we're coming from and how the Bible does indeed interpret itself. And so let's, uh, let's dig in and go back here to the beginning of the first beast, I guess I would say. And um, you'll remember that Daniel, well, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 had a dream. And as a result, the whole story with the wise men, right, the death decree, and Daniel's three friends had that prayer meeting our first night. We talked about that. Daniel ended up describing to King Nebuchadnezzar the future of the world. Um, Nebuchadnezzar had had this dream. He had forgotten it. Now Daniel reviews and refreshes his mind, his memory, tells him what he had dreamed, and then what it meant. He was telling, God was telling Nebuchadnezzar what would happen in the last days according to that dream. Um, if you weren't here that night, we can, we can, uh, you can go back online and listen, or we can get some CDs. Um, we remember that these, these, uh, this, this, these uh, four beasts represented each different empires, right? Uh, uh, these four metals, I should say. It, each represented four empires. And um, the first one was the head of gold, right? And Nebuchadnezzar was told, you are that head of gold. That was Babylon. And here we find that God is once again using a different symbol, but he's using a symbol to represent Babylon. Now, we do that today, don't we? We use animals as mascots for nations, don't we? What's the, what's the symbol of the United States of America? It's the bald eagle, yes. Um, this summer, I, ha- I had the privilege of going with my family, my siblings and parents and in-laws uh, and nieces, niece and nephew to Alaska. And um, we spent some time looking for bald eagles. And the first bald eagle that I saw, or we saw, we were really excited. We were like, wow, there's a bald eagle, and getting cameras out and trying to get pictures of it and, and, you know, following it sort of trying to see where it would go. And well, after about 300 or 400 bald eagles, they become less... Uh, less exciting, and uh, you get used to seeing them. They're everywhere in Alaska. Um, but that is a majestic bird, and when you watch them, when you watch them diving and flying and, 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 and fishing, it's just phenomenal to see that bird. So God wasn't doing something that, that, that is that unusual. We use animals to represent nations as well. Um, the former Soviet Union was represented by what animal? The bear. The bear. Okay, so some of you still remember the 
the Cold War, I guess, the USSR. And um, so this is something that we still do today. But it's not just, it's not just because Babylon was the first metal and now the lion is the first animal that we think that Babylon is represented by the lion. In fact, when we go to the gates of Babylon, um, this one, I believe, reconstruction in the museum in Berlin, um, these are the actual bricks from the, from the city of Babylon taken back, painstakingly put back together. You find the, the lion throughout the, the gates of Babylon. And not only that, the Bible also uses a lion to symbolize Babylon elsewhere. The Bible really does interpret itself. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 7 says, A lion has come out of his lair, a destroyer of nations has set out, he has left his place to lay waste your land. This is Jeremiah predicting the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. You remember there was that debate in Israel in the time of Jeremiah because Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem once and they began paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, but the Jews didn't like paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And then so after, after Egypt had a skirmish with Babylon and wasn't defeated by Babylon, we, uh, the, the, the Jews became emboldened to stop paying their tribute to Babylon and to seek for protection from Egypt. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, a lot of his prophecies, or quite a few of his prophecies, are, are directed towards telling the king of, of, of the Jews, you are, a, you are supposed to be paying tribute to Babylon. In fact, this is God's scourge to teach you a lesson. Don't do this thing with Egypt. Um, but they did it anyway, and of course, Jerusalem ended up being completely destroyed. So here Jeremiah is describing Babylon with a lion. So the first, the first image, or the first, uh, the first a a animal is the lion. Babylon would reign from 605 to 539 B.C., and um, afterwards, of course, another kingdom would come. Now, we know what would follow after uh, Babylon, and that's Medo-Persia, right? Medo-Persia would, would, would uh, come after. In verse 5, it says, another, Behold, another beast, a second like to a bear. It raised itself up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. So how would this symbolize the kingdom of Medo-Persia? Well, when we say Medo-Persia, we're really talking about two kingdoms, aren't we? The Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians came together to overthrow Babylon. Darius and, um, and Cyrus... Cyrus being the general who masterminded the, the fall of Babylon, um, Darius being the first king of the joint empire, being older, it was agreed between the two of them that he should rule on the throne first, and for the rest of the, uh, the Medo-Persian empire, the kings alternated, one from the Medes, one from the Persians, one from the Medes, one from the Persians. That's just the way they, they arranged it. And um, so I'm not sure which side came up first is being described here. I would guess it's Cyrus, the mastermind of the whole overthrow of the kingdom of Babylon. Maybe it's Darius who was on the throne first, but it's pretty clear there were two sides, not three, right? And the Bible knew that. God knew that. Not only that, it says there were three ribs in its teeth. And if we look at the conquering of Babylon, we, we don't see this in the Bible itself, but many scholars would agree that if a beast represents a kingdom, then a rib would be a part of a kingdom, right? A province, an, an area, geographical region. And three, it just so happens that three major provinces of the empire 
had to be conquered before the Medes and the Persians could say that they were the indisputed ruler of that part of the world, what had been the Babylonian Empire. Those three provinces were Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. And so that, that seems to be what the image is, or the, what the animal with the three ribs is describing. After the chest and arms of silver, remember, there are the belly and thighs of brass. And here we see a leopard, a leopard with four heads. Verse 6, I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had on the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given unto it. Now, if wings represented speed, what would four wings represent? A lot of speed, right? In 12 years, Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, much more than that, his empire expanded even um, to a greater degree. Um, it's said that he sat down and cried when there was no more territory left to conquer. Um, he, he had a young age, um, just, just um, in his early 30s, was the victor of the then-known world. And what's interesting about it is that Alexander would not just, we would not have much time to enjoy that newfound victory. In fact, um, after making that victory, it's, uh, it's, it's sometimes believed that perhaps he was poisoned, we don't know, uh, perhaps he was depressed and he drank himself to death, um, that's another um, uh, uh, maybe suspicion. But uh, on his deathbed, Alexander the Great realized that um, he might not be able to carry on his kingdom. And uh, his wife, Roxana, was pregnant, and he hoped that she would be uh, pregnant with the heir to the throne, someone that would carry on the Alexander name um, and the dynasty that he had inherited from his father of Greece. And, and so he decided that he would divide his kingdom, the custodianship of his kingdom among his generals. Now, he had five generals, and uh, very quickly, he did die, but very quickly upon his death, they started fighting as he was afraid, and um, he, one of those was eliminated almost immediately, and they, he had thought that if he left his kingdom in the hand of multiple people, that there would be some, you know, some balance of power, and that maybe his son would be able to ra be raised until he was old enough to become the king. In actuality, um, they killed his son. He, Roxana did have a son, but they were killed, and his four generals now divided the kingdom between them. And so, um, in Daniel chapter 8, it describes this even more clearly. We don't have time to look at that whole prophecy tonight, but Daniel chapter 8 says, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation when describing the empire of Greece. So it's pretty clear, isn't it? In Daniel chapter 8, it makes it abundantly clear that he's talking about this kingdom being divided. And in fact, we see history taking that course. Um, Theodore Mounson says in Alexander the Great, page 494, each one wetted the sword against the other, and the empire went down in a tangle of strife. Finally, on June 22, 168 B.C., at the Battle of Pydna, perished the empire of Alexander the Great 144 years after his death. And we talk about these four empires. Greece lasted the, the shortest period of time. But these, uh, these, um, these, four, uh, these four generals would divide the empire among themselves, and then they would uh, eventually, it wouldn't last very long. But what about the fourth empire? The angel told Daniel that it would be different from the others. And when we look at this 
this description of Rome here in Daniel chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 7. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. A more fitting description of the Roman Empire can hardly be found. In fact, um, this would be the, the longest lasting of the empires. It would also be the empire that would use the more, most brute force, the most brutality in dealing with the people. In fact, um, it would be known as a persecuting power, and especially persecuting God's own people. Of course, this would also be the power that was in, a, in play when Jesus himself, the Messiah, would come, isn't it? And it was a Roman, a Roman judge or Roman ruler that, that turned Jesus over to the Jewish leaders to crucify him. It were Roman soldiers that carried out that dastardly deed. And so Rome would play a, a significant role in the history of God's people. This fourth empire would last all the way from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. And uh, we see here that it would be an empire that would be very strong. But there's something that, that, uh, that caught Daniel's attention. Um, we, we notice here that Daniel was quite concerned about something here. Um, we find in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7, it says, I can, uh, it says in verse 7, the end of the verse 7, it says, It had ten horns. It said, I considered the horns, and there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So these horns, by the way, let's just stop here and, and, and make something very clear. The Bible explains what a horn is also. So we have these beasts representing kingdoms, right? And now we have, a, we have horns coming out of the fourth beast, the fourth, fourth kingdom. Let's look in verse 24, and let's see what, it, what these horns represent. Verse 24 says, the ten horns out of this kingdom are what? Ten kings that shall arise. So, in other words, Rome would not be replaced by one significant animal, right? Another animal that, you know, uh, trots onto the scene or gallops onto the scene or growls onto the scene, whatever it would be. Rome wouldn't be replaced by that, but it would be replaced. But from itself, from within, it would be sort of divided into ten different kingdoms. That's what the prophecy is trying to describe here. And it's very interesting. Uh, we, we don't have time to look in great detail, but Revelation has a similar prophecy because Revelation also has this prophecy of Rome. Of course, it was in power in Jesus' day, but it would have a transition in the future to a different type of Rome, Roman Empire or Roman Roman system. And so in Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, for example, you will find that uh, Satan, the dragon, is described as a, um, having seven heads and ten horns. Remember that? And seven crowns upon its heads. That's how it's described in Revelation chapter 12. Now, the same image is described in Revelation chapter 13. Seven heads, ten horns. But what's, what, what you've got to catch, the Bible has these little nuances when you're talking about symbolic prophecy. Chapter 12, the horns are on the heads. Chapter 13, the horns, the, I'm sorry, the crowns are on the heads. Chapter 13, the crowns are on the horns. Very interesting here. So in other words, there would be a transition from the seven heads ruling. And again, Revelation is very clear. In Revelation 17, it says the seven heads or the seven mountains 
So it's describing, again, the city of Rome. You know there's seven hills, the city of seven hills. Rome would be, the crown would be ruling, but eventually Rome would break up and those crowns would move from the seven heads to the ten horns. And so when you look at Revelation 13, you're actually looking at a description of Rome after the breakup of the Roman Empire. But that's, that's, a, that's a whole study for another night. Very interesting, though, how, how these seven horns come up out of the Roman Empire, and um, ten horns, I'm sorry, come up out of the Roman Empire, and how these, these uh, let's see, there they are, these ten tribes would divide what had been the people of, of the Western Roman Empire into ten different people groups. Um, we have the Vandals of North Africa, the Suevi, Visigoths, Burgundies, Heruli, Ostrogoths, Lombards, Alemanni, the Franks, and the Anglo-Saxons. Those would all become their own entities after the breakup of Rome, which we understand happens around the end of the 5th century. 476 AD is the accepted date for the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, these, were, these, this, these happenings were very troubling for Daniel. Notice what he says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, and the visions of my head troubled me. In verse 28, he says, I was deeply troubled by my thoughts. So whatever this, these things were that Daniel was learning, they were troubling to him. Now, why would they be troubling to him? Didn't he already understand what was going to happen? I mean, after all, Daniel 2, he had that dream, right? And he knows already there's going to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then the, the kingdom that's going to be set up that rules the whole world, fills the whole world, and rules forever is the kingdom of God, right? So why would Daniel be troubled? Well, this, this helps us to understand another principle of prophetic interpretation. What happens with, uh, with, uh, with prophecy is it goes back over some of the same ground which it had already covered because, under the principle of historicism at least, we're beginning with the time of the prophet and ending at the time of the end, right? So it goes back over some of the same ground, but what's the point in that? The point in that is to give more information, especially towards the end of time. So as each of these prophecies unfold, Daniel chapter 2, we get sort of like a bird's eye view. Daniel chapter 7, we get the bird's eye view again, but boy, we get a zoom in at the last days. Daniel chapter 8 and 9, we get even more information about the last days. Daniel 10 through 12, even greater. And when we get the book of Revelation, we have again seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and we have these, these expanding information, especially towards the last days. So Daniel's learning something new here, and it had to do not with the four beasts, because he already knew about the four metals, right? It had to do with what happened after the four beasts, the four empires. He was deeply troubled by his thoughts. Now, this is where this, this story gets really interesting. We see in verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up another, among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns pulled up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. What you see happening, what Daniel sees happening here, is a new power coming onto the scene. And it's this little horn that has this, this, uh, these, these human characteristics and are the, this description that's very, very different from the other ten horns. And so what we're going to do, we're going to try to look at every description that Daniel gives or was given about this little horn power. And we're going to see, we're going to see how we can 
identify what this was that Daniel saw that was very troubling. And so, right now, if we just, if we just read that verse, verse 8, there's a whole bunch of things we can see from that first verse. All right? Are you ready? Uh, are you looking at verse 8, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8? Notice what it says. First of all, it says it would be a what? Would it be one of the ten horns that, 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 that is very troubling for Daniel? What does it say? It would be another horn, wouldn't it be? It would not be one of those ten people groups that we talked about. Um, it also says it would be a what? A little horn, a little horn. Now, this is interesting. Um, it's just described as a little horn. It also says it would emerge among the horns. Now, we saw where Rome was and where Rome broke up, so we would expect geographically it would come up at, uh, in the same area of the uh, Western Roman Empire. Number four, it would uproot three of the original horns. Um, I mean, these are some pretty specific uh, characteristics that is being given here in this prophecy, aren't they? Um, verse, uh, number five, it would have human vision, eyes like the eyes of a man is the way the, uh, the prophet described it. It would have eyes like the eyes of a man. It would speak great things. Um, in the verse 8, it says he would have a mouth speaking great things. In verse 25, it says that he will speak great words against the Most High. So these are great words against God, blasphemous words. And when we, when we look at the same characteristics that we discover in the book of Revelation, in fact, blasphemy is given there as well. Uh, number 7, it would arise after the other horns. Now, we know that more so from, not just from Daniel's description here in verse 8, but turn with me now to a few verses later. This is the explanation of the vision now in verse 25. Well, in verse 24, actually. Verse 24, Ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another will rise after them, and he will be different from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So he's repeating some of these things, plucking up three horns by the roots. What does that mean? Subduing three kings. Um, he's different. He rises after the ten horns, right? And he speaks great words against the Most High. Um, verse 25, uh, shall wear out the saints of the Most High. That sounds like persecution, doesn't it? And think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. So if we look at these characteristics now from verse 24 and 25 as well, it would arise after the other horns. It would be different from the other horns. It would persecute God's people. It would think to change times and laws. And it would have power for three and a half times. Time, times, and the dividing of times. Um, time being one, times being, well, two, at least two. And dividing of time being half a time. Uh, this, was a, this was a familiar way of speaking in the, in the Hebrew, um, Hebrew writing. Um, times usually spoke, spoke about of years. Um, so we're going to look at these sort of one by one. We're going to go through and see um, how this happened historically. We see, and I shared with you, that Rome broke up into ten different people groups, right? The Alemanni are today the Germans, the Burgundians the Swiss, the Franks are French, Lombards Italians, Saxons English, Suevi Portuguese, Visigoths Spanish. We don't have any people groups alive today that trace their roots back to the Heruli, the Vandals, or the Ostrogoths. These three tribes are extinct. And how did they become extinct? Well, as Rome was decaying, of course the Vandals were among the first to sort of cause the demise of Rome. Um, if you remember your decline and fall of the Roman Empire, 
Uh, the Vandals from North Africa became quite a formidable for force of sea-going um, Vandals. I guess that's the best word for it, since that's the word that was named after them. What do we call vandalism? It's when you come and take something that's not yours, right? And, and the vandals would actually land and make quick foraging, marauding missions into Rome, into Rome itself even, and then quickly head back to North Africa. And um, Rome became powerless to stop these people groups until a later time. But um, three would be uprooted by Rome as a transition took place of power. Um, the first, the Heruli, were uprooted by Zeno, Emperor Zeno, in AD 493. The Vandals would be uprooted by Justinian in AD 534. And the last of these groups by Justinian as well in AD 538. Now, it's very interesting. You remember we studied the other night how, the Christian, how Rome became a Christian empire in the time of Constantine, right? So... There's a succession of Roman empire, emperors who are now Christians, quote-unquote Christians, right? Um, they still had many of the same habits and practices as they had previously had. But um, Justinian became the one who decided that he was not just a Christian emperor. He was especially an emperor that was here to defend or do the will of the bishop of Rome the leader of the church in Rome. And so Justinian uprooted these last two groups because they were Arian in their theology. They did not agree with the church of Rome, and they actually began to persecute them or try to subject them. They fought back and eventually were completely wiped out by Emperor Justinian. Now, Justinian would also declare during his time, he would declare the bishop of Rome the leader of the, West, of the Western Roman Empire. And this is a pretty significant, um, pretty significant eventuality that took place here because have you ever heard of the word Pontifex Maximus? How do, who, do, who do we usually think of as carrying that title today? The Pope, right? The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, carries the title Pontifex Maximus. But supreme ruler, which is what that means, was previously the title of the emperor of Rome, not the bishop of Rome, okay? And it was Justinian who said, I don't, I'm just going to be the servant of the bishop. I will do his bidding. I will march an army for him. But he is now, he transferred the title from the emperor of Rome to the bishop of Rome of Pontifex Maximus. The supreme ruler became, during his time, the um, bishop of Rome. So here you have history. History showing us that it's very difficult to escape the conclusion that many have come to, and which all Protestant faiths at one time taught, that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 points to a system, not a group of people, not a specific person, but a system of, of uh, government and religion which took the place of what had been the Western Roman Empire. And... Um, you know, we're going to look at these one by one and simply see how those characteristics could be seen to fit uh, the, the, uh, what would become Christianity or the, become known as the Church of Rome as it emerged from the shadows or from under the auspices of the mighty Roman Empire, the empirical Rome. So, First of all, is it true that, number one, it would be another horn? Would the 
Church of Rome be one of those previous groups, or would it be a new one? It would be a new one, wouldn't it? Um, second of all, would it be a little horn? I mean, Rome itself is sort of just a city, isn't it? it ruled, ruled the world. But here you have not just, not even a city, you just have a, a, a smaller group, a church, basically, that is ruling the world. It would emerge among the horns. Would it emerge there in that same geographical area? Yes or no? Yes, it would. Um, it would. It would uproot the three original horns. Well, we saw how Rome, the empire of Rome did that, but we also noted that the empire of Rome did it at the behest of the bishop of Rome because of difference in theology. And that's more than we can take um, specific looks at here tonight, but uh, you can research that yourself. These three people groups were uprooted, three um, original horns. It would have human vision. We'll come back and talk about that in just a minute. It would rise after the horns. Well, when did the church rise to political power? Would it be after 476 or before 476? It was after, right? 538 is the date that we talked about when that last people group that opposed um, the church, um, the, the Ostrogoths were uprooted. And um, so 538 is definitely after 476. Would it be different from the others? Would that be a characteristic that would describe the new power that would arise in the place of Rome? Obviously, it's not only a government, it's not just a civil power, but it's also a religious power, a church, you might say. Um, and if we look at history, we can see in canon and tradition um, how we might see one more characteristic being fulfilled. Remember, we looked at this statement the other night um, at the Council of Trent, it said, um, finally, at the last opening of the 18th of January, 1562, all hesitation was set aside. The Archbishop of Reggio made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above Scripture. So when Daniel saw that little horn having the eyes like the eyes of a what? A man. It indicated that he would have, that power would have human ideas or human vision or human reasonings maybe even following human traditions, right? Now, this is, this, is, this is even more clear when we remember that in the Old Testament, a prophet was called a seer. Remember that? It's sort of a funny word, at least in the King James. I think some of the new translations may have updated that. But the King James, the Old English, they called it a seer. And um, you think, well, what's a seer? S-E-E-R. We don't have that real word today in, in English very often. But the reason a prophet in the Old Testament was called a seer was because they saw things that God showed them, right? They, were, they saw divine revelations. Uh, Daniel, you could call a seer, right? Because he saw the things of God and, and he wrote it down for us. Now, the, if we follow if we follow the teachings of the prophets, the writings of the prophets, if we are following the instructions of the seers, then we are benefiting from that divine vision, aren't we? But as soon as we begin putting our own ideas in the place of God's word, we stand on dangerous ground. So I believe these eyes like the eyes of a man represent that this system would come to trust human traditions more than it trusted the word of God. And this, this pronouncement at the Council of Trent in uh, 1562 certainly made that very clear they were debating whether scripture or tradition should have primacy and they said no tradition is more clear and safe tradition stands above uh, scripture so i believe that this human vision can be understood as as trusting in man's ideas and even 
even the teachings or sayings of a man above the Word of God. By the way, friends, it's very, very dangerous when we begin trusting what a human being says is truth instead of looking at God's Word for ourselves. I want to just underscore that point here this evening very, very clearly. All of our teachings and beliefs and doctrines should be founded upon God's Word. We don't take any person, living or dead, as a source of doctrine and practice. That's the cry of Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, right? The Bible and the Bible only as our standard of doctrine and practice. So, if we, if we move on and look at some of these other characteristics, we might even find a mouth speaking great things. I wanted to share with you a few statements. Some of them you've probably been familiar with through the years, but here um, Pope Boniface VIII says, The Pope, as the vicar of Christ on earth, possesses the same full power of jurisdiction that Christ himself possessed during his human life. Do you think that's a great claim? I would consider that to be a... a some pretty big claims. We continue on throughout history. I just chose a few. We could spend our whole time just looking at this, but it's not really what we want to focus on. Um, Pope Benedict the, uh, what is that, the 14th? Although unworthy, we take the place of God on earth. Speaking of the popes, of course. Cardinal John O'Connor, um, more contemporary uh, Archbishop of our Cardinal um, in New York says, The Holy Father is the true successor of Christ on earth. Great claims the church has made. Pope John Paul II, in his Catholic dossier of March, April 1999, the Pope is the man on earth who represents the Son of God, who takes the place of the second person of the omnipotent God of the Trinity. Um, now, that isn't even talking about some of the claims the church has made to be able, for example, during communion to create the creator in the wafer or the claims to be able to forgive sins um, as God alone is the one who can forgive sins. And so I would, I would have to conclude that the sixth characteristic that it speaks great things would also be described or be fulfilled by this power, right? Um, what about persecuting? The Roman Empire we know is a persecuting empire. Um, but what about the, 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 the uh, papal Roman Empire, the Church of Rome? Did it also persecute? In fact, we know it did. The Bible was outlawed. Um, we find from Wycliffe on, as the Reformation began to awaken, there was, uh, there was persecution of God's people. Wycliffe had enough influence and popularity in England that he was able to translate the Bible and put it in the common tongue the first time it was in the English language um, and, and given to the people. That, that he was able to survive that. They didn't kill him, but after he died and politics changed, they actually dug up his bones and they burned them and they cast his bones into the, into the, uh, into the river um, because they were against the things that he taught. He taught, for example, that we can pray directly to Jesus Christ as our high priest. He gave the people the Bible and you don't have to read the Bible very much to start learning that there are truths that have been forgotten for centuries and even thousands of years. The Huguenots, the Waldenses, some have estimated as many as 50 million people perished because of their beliefs. 
during the Middle Ages. 50 million, somewhere between 20 and 50 million. And um, I've spent some time in Italy where there was, in northern Italy, northwestern north, uh, Italy, there was a part of, of the mountains there near the Alps that a people group who resisted Rome for centuries, hundreds of years, 600 years, they resisted the teachings of Rome. And over and over and over, Rome sent armies to try to, try to, uh, try to get rid of them. In fact, one time they almost completely purged the Waldensian valleys of any heretics, as they would call them. They were all taken over to Geneva, and um, there was just one group of 200 men that stayed in the, the Valley of the Invincibles, they're called today. The Valley of the Invincibles is a rugged valley that um, an army of 25,000 chased these men around for two years and were never able to capture them. Fa fantastic story. And if you hike in that valley, you'll see why. Um, it's, a, it's an extremely, extremely rugged territory, one of my favorite places on earth. Um, but here we find history once again fulfilling what the prophecy said. It would seek to wear out the saints of the Most High. Um, it, would, it would indeed be persecuting power that would persecute God's people. It would, it would have power for three and a half times. We're taking them a little out of order here because the first verse and the last verse, the, the explanation are a little different order, but here we find three and a half times in the Hebrew uh, language. When they talk about times, they were often talking about years. Um, uh, in talking about David's rule, it says he ruled for 40 times. Now, we know that he, didn't get on, he wasn't put on the throne 40 different times, right? We know it's talking about the years that he ruled, 40 different years. And um, so if a time equals a year and, and, a, uh, and times equals two years, then we have 720 days in a Hebrew year. Again, there's 360. Um, half a time is half a year, 180 days. It comes to 1,260 days. Now, this is important to us, and I wish we had more time. I wish we had two hours every night instead of one hour. Um, I would get just warmed up, it seems like, after my first hour. But this time prophecy occurs no less than six times in the books of Daniel and Revelation. Six different times. Sometimes it's called three and a half years. Sometimes it's called four, 42 months. Sometimes it's called 1,260 days. And um, it, 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 appears, it appears several times here in the book of Daniel. And it appears several times in the book of Revelation. And it's one of the things that ties the stories of the Antichrist power of Daniel and the Antichrist power of Revelation together. Does this make sense? Um, when you see the same characteristics being given in Revelation as you do in Daniel, you think, aha, he's talking about the same power, right? And so we don't have time to look at all of those, but it's the same thing when you talk about 1,260 days in Hebrew, that's three and a half years, Hebrew years. Um, 42 months, again, is three and a half years. And in, the, in symbolic Bible prophecy, we understand that a day equals a year. Um, again, we would have to break down Daniel chapter 9 to really prove that to you. That's the next vision, Daniel 8 and 9. Daniel 8, da Daniel 8 and 9 predicts the coming of the Messiah. And all Christians, when we get to Daniel chapter 9 at least, agree that a day equals a year in Daniel chapter 9. Symbolic prophecy. Now, as I've said, futurism has sort of an apple basket upset. Um, it, has re, it has changed a lot of these rules, and in futurism, they just say a day equals a year. So you hear a lot of people talking about three and a half literal years. Um, I believe that these six-time prophecies, as they appear, are symbolic times of three and a half symbolic years, 
a day equals a year, which turns that into, instead of 1260 days, 1260 years. Now, again, I wish we'll, we'll talk more about this as we move on. The Ostrogoths were uprooted in what year? Do you remember? It's right there, 5, 538. And so if this is true, we would expect that the power that is being described in these verses should come to an end, or at least some sort of an end, in 1260 years after 538. Now, budding mathematicians, experienced mathematicians, what's 538 plus 1260? 1798, we would expect something significant should happen that would cap the career of this persecuting power that arose after the rise of uh, the fall of Rome. And in fact, in 1798, the French Revolution was going on. God was dead, it was declared. Napoleon marched, or he had his general, Berthier, march to the city of Rome, and to demonstrate that God was dead, they marched right into the St. Peter's Basilica, and they found the Pope praying in uh, the Sistine Chapel, and they dragged him out. They declared that there was no church, there was no God, and the Pope died in captivity, fairly conclusively demonstrating, wouldn't you say, that the church no longer exercised civil power. It had. From the time of Justinian on, emperors had stood in the snow barefoot for days just trying to get the forgiveness of the Pope. Emperors, kings had fought battles on behalf of, on behalf of the Bishop of Rome. But in 1798, these dramatic events, when Napoleon's general captured the Pope and took him into exile where he would die, demonstrated that the church no longer held civil authority over what had been the Western Roman Empire. 1700 and 1798, exactly 1260 years after the last of those tribes had been uprooted. So it would have power for three and a half times, the prophecy said, and that also is fulfilled by the church of Rome. Um, but the last one, it would think to change times and laws. I want to just share with you a couple of things here that the, uh, the church has done and, and, and doesn't, doesn't really apologize for doing. It claims to have the authority to change God's law. Can you imagine? It has the authority to change God's law. The Catholic Church this is from the Christian Sabbath, page 16. The Catholic Church for over 1,000 years before the existence of a Protestant, by virtue of her divine mission, changed the day from Saturday to Sunday. What day is that talking about? The Sabbath. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we ask ourselves, why do we do today keep Sunday holy? Well, it's simply because the church decided, and we looked at some of that history a few nights ago, the church decided that instead of Saturday being holy, Sunday ought to be holy. We look at some other historical references. The Converse Catechism reads this way. Question, what is the Sabbath day? Which is the Sabbath day? The answer is, Saturday is the Sabbath day. And this is a consecutive question. Why do we observe sun Sunday instead of Saturday? The answer is because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. You see that? Was it because of a command of Scripture? No, it's because of the authority of the church. Um, this is from the St. Catholic Catholic Church Sentinel, May 21, 1995. And this is what it says, perhaps the boldest thing 
the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. It actually would have been a little bit after the first century, probably the third century, but we'll give that to them. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Now, I didn't say that. They said it. They said, we change the day. Um, one, one, Protest, one Catholic, it was, not, it was not James Gibbons, it was another Catholic cardinal. He said, he said, Protestants claiming to be Protestants and separate from the Catholic Church, but still keeping Sunday holy, are like children who run away from home with a, a lock of their mom's hair in their pocket, like a, like a vestige, a member, remembrance of, of the Church of Rome. And so, did the Catholic Church attempt to change times and laws? In fact, I believe that also has been fulfilled. Now, it's very interesting. I preach this message in many parts of the world because it's not because I like it. You know, it's not a person or any group of people that I'm talking about. It's a system that I'm talking about. Is that very clear to you tonight? I'm not talking about people. There are many, many, many good Catholics. My family, I come from a Catholic family, my mom, my grandma... They were, they were Italians. They're Catholics, let me tell you. They're Catholics. So I love Catholics. I love Rome, for that matter. Um, but we're talking about what the Bible says, right? And I have to be honest with what the Bible says. If this is what the Bible teaches, then that's what I have to believe. I have to teach it. I was in Ukraine doing a prophecy seminar, and, and we talked about this. Now, I didn't know how it would relate. Most of the people there aren't Christian. There are many, most, many were atheists. In fact, you know, they've had 70 years of atheism. And, and um, in that particular set of meetings, we were preaching on one side of the city at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and 6 o'clock another side of the city. So we had to take everything down, all of our equipment, and move it across town and set it all back up. And, and we had different, pe- different people coming. And I had a translator. He was a very interesting translator. This translator, he had, he had a lot of experience um, and he had, he had himself taught some of these things before, and so he thought he knew what I was talking about, and often he'd get ahead of me. Now, that's not technically translating. That's technically preaching your own sermon. Um, but how would I know that? Well, I'd look over at him, I'd say something, and I'd look over at him, and he'd say, go on. And I'd say it again, because this is an important thought, you understand. And he'd say, no, I already said that. Really? Well, I didn't, Okay. So, at any rate, he comes to me after the meeting, and we just talked about this, and he says to me, he says, Chester, you did that wrong. I said, well, okay. Tell me how to do it right, you know. Um, He said, well, what you have to do, you came, you went through those 12 steps, and then you said, now, there's only one power that can fulfill all of these 11 or 12, we actually looked at some of the New Testament too, but... All of these characteristics, there's only one power in history that could possibly fit. And then you told them that it was the papacy of Rome. So you have to have them tell you. I said, really? Because in America, if you ask the average American when Rome fell, they probably wouldn't come close to the right century. You understand what I'm saying? I mean... We Americans, we aren't real big on history. Probably this group is because you're interested in prophecy. Most people like prophecy like history too. 
Um, and I remember all of you raised your hands. A lot of you raised your hands when you like history. But the average American, I'm telling you, you ask them about history. I mean, you, you even ask them about you know, Abraham Lincoln and they don't even know, right? It's, it's pretty pathetic how we just don't engage with history very much. And so I've, I've always been nervous about asking audiences to tell me what these groups... He said, this is how you do it. He says, you, you go over two or three of the, the characteristics and then you say, now, some of you are already thinking of what this power may be. And then you go over two or three more and then you say, some of you already figured out. And then you get to the end and you just ask them. You say, what is the only power that could possibly fulfill these characteristics? Now, I'm nervous by this point because I'm thinking, okay, you know there's sometimes doubts in your mind? What if, what if my understanding of this has just been preconditioned on growing up in what was primarily a Protestant nation? You know? What if, what if my view of history was cultured or was, was sort of tainted by the fact that we had a, we, our founding fathers also escaped persecution and, and they had this interpretation of prophecy and they, they believed this as, the, as Martin Luther and, and John Calvin and Wesley and the others did. So what if I've just been... And here are these people, they've had 70 years of atheism, not coming from a Western Christianity worldview and they, they've been taught history, but it's a di- maybe it's a different history, you know? You know, I decided to do what he said. And I was nervous when I finally came to the end of those characteristics and I said, what is the only power historically that could possibly be described? And with one voice, 600 people in that auditorium said, the papacy. It blew me away, but it also reaffirmed how clear in in the prophecy of Daniel that these prophecies are from their atheistic, secular view of history, they saw that there was only one possibility, and that was that it would be the Church of Rome. Now, I want you to know this is not how the chapter ends, because we've had to spend a fair bit of time on this, but I want you to look in Daniel chapter 7. If you still have your Bibles open, look with me there, or if you don't, get them open again, because we're not going to end on that note. My goodness. Daniel is not a, Dan, is not a book like Revelation. It's not a book of of woe and, and, and scary beasts. It's a, it's a book of hope. And Daniel 7 and verse 13, notice with me the end of the vision, and then we'll look at the interpretation of the end of the vision. Verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, who's the Son of Man? One like the Son of Man. This is the, this is the favorite term of Jesus. He calls himself the Son of Man. It's found 40 times in the New Testament. It's hard to miss, isn't it? Jesus now appears on the scene. And it says in verse 14, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. Oh, my friends, this ends on a very high note. Wouldn't you agree? There's, there's this time of a, a great and dreadful uh, time of persecution, which is described here in the, in the book of, of Daniel. Daniel's troubled by it, but one thing we know very well is that Jesus emerges as the hero. Jesus emerges as the victor. Jesus emerges as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me tell you, friends, it's not by accident 
that the that the uh, that the the kingdoms of this world worked worked by I believe the arch deceiver. What is what is Lucifer's goal? Lucifer's goal is to take the worship that belongs to God, right? To take the honor and the and the truth that belongs to God and place his own worship and his own ideas and his own truth in its place. And this is what he has tried to do through many powers. One of them being the Church of the Middle Ages. Um, and so here you find the end of the story. Who wins, Christ or the Antichrist? It's Jesus Christ, my friends. He is, he is the victor. Notice with me in verse 26. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume it and destroy it unto the end. Is the judgment good news? Absolutely. It's Jesus coming to take his kingdom. And the kingdom and dominion, the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Oh, what good news we find in the end of the story. The good news is that all we need is to make sure that Jesus is our Savior from sin. I don't want you to go out of here thinking all about beasts and dwelling all upon systems of religion that have taken people's eyes off of Jesus. I want you to go out of here thinking about Jesus. Because that's the whole problem with the beast or the Antichrist, is that it takes us our eyes off of Jesus. I say God's people in the last days ought to have their eyes fixed on Jesus. That He ought to be our priest that can forgive our sins. Amen? that He ought to be our King and the one that we call Father, that He ought to be the one whose commands we obey and who we worship. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God's last day people keeping the commandments of God and the faith of who? The faith of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about keeping our eyes on Him. And so we have nothing to fear even in the judgment as long as He is making us His children He offers to give us His righteousness in exchange for our sins. Is that a good deal or what? It's a logical, rational, reasonable thing that God offers to do. He says, I'll take your sins and I'll give you my righteousness. I'll take your death and I'll give you my life. Oh, who would would want to resist that? I don't want to resist that. I want to say, Jesus, just make me ready for that day. And keep my eyes on you. Keep my eyes on your word. Help me to see spiritual things through the portals of the seers, through the word of God, that I might be able to be led all the way to the promised land. Is that your desire? You want to have that same decision as as I tonight? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven. We just thank you that tonight we've been able to look. It's, it's hard in just an hour to, to unpack a whole chapter of prophecy and to, to look at all the history behind it. But I just want to pray that, that your spirit would work upon our hearts as we've talked about things that might seem a little bit difficult to understand, that, that you would just inspire each person here with understanding that um, even if they can see that five or six or eight or ten of these things by themselves, have to point to one power. I pray that you will help us, though, not to keep our eyes on on the deception, but on the truth. That you'll help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. That we might just fall more and more in love with Him every day. That His kingdom, which we believe is coming soon to this world, is that His kingdom might first come to our hearts. 
that we might have him abiding in our hearts by faith, that he might cover us with his righteousness, that he might give us his life, that all that we do, we might be disciples, not of a system, not of a, not of a man or a teacher here on earth now, but Lord, that we might be disciples of a man named Jesus Christ, that our eyes might be fixed on him, that we might just want to believe what he believed and teach what he taught and live as he lived. That's our desire. It's our decision today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.